put on your listening ears once again as I read for us this affirmation. We believe that the Holy Spirit has, whoop, we believe the Holy Spirit has always been at work in the world, sharing in the work of creation, awakening faith in the remnant of God's people, performing signs and wonders, giving triumphs in battle, empowering the preaching of, the, of prophets, and inspiring the writing of Scripture. Yet, when Christ had made atonement for sin and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he inaugurated a new era of the Spirit by pouring out the promise of the Father on his church. We believe that the newness of this era is marked by the unprecedented mission of the Spirit to glorify the crucified and risen Christ. This he does by giving the disciples of Jesus greater power to preach the gospel of the glory of Christ, by opening the hearts of hearers that they might see Christ and believe, by revealing the beauty of Christ in his word and transforming his people from glory to glory, by manifesting himself in spiritual gifts, being sovereignly free to dispense as he wills all the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, for the upbuilding of the body of Christ and the confirmation of his word by calling all the nations into the sway of the gospel of Christ and in all this, thus fulfilling the new covenant promise to create and preserve a purified people for the everlasting habitation of God. We believe that apart from the effectual work of the spirit, no one would come to faith because all are dead in trespasses and sins that they are hostile to God and morally unable to submit to God or please Him because the pleasures of sin appear greater than the pleasures of God. Thus, for God's elect, the Spirit triumphs over all resistance, wakens the dead, removes blindness, and manifests Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way through the gospel that He becomes irresistibly attractive to the regenerate heart. And finally, we believe the Holy Spirit does this saving work in connection with the presentation of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Thus, neither the work of the Father in election, or the work of the Son in atonement, or the work of the Spirit in regeneration is a hindrance or discouragement to the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples and persons everywhere. On the contrary, this divine saving work of the Trinity is the warrant and the ground of our hope that our evangelization, that's sharing the gospel with people, is not in vain in the Lord. The Spirit binds His saving work to the gospel of Christ because His aim is to glorify the Christ of the gospel. Therefore, we do not believe that there is salvation through any other means than through receiving the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit except that infants and severely retarded persons with minds physically incapable, incapable of comprehending the gospel may be saved. Well, today I mentioned our goal is to take all of that and try to apply. It's like, so what? You know, are these truths just abstract conceptual things that if you think about them rightly, that's enough? Or is Christianity mental ascent? If you can say, as I'm quoting another, another famous pastor of old, if you can say, uh-huh, to all the right questions. Do you believe Jesus is God? Uh-huh. Believe he died on a cross? Uh-huh. If you can do that, is that enough? Is Christianity just mental assent 
to propositional truth? Or is there something more? Today we're talking about the so what, the applications of the realities of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to highlight briefly some things from this affirmation that are all application. The newness of this era, the new covenant age, is marked by the unprecedented mission of the Spirit to glorify the crucified and risen Christ. That's the numero uno thing the Holy Spirit is doing. That's his vocation, that's his job, and he loves his job, and he is really good at it. How does he do that? He gives power to preach the gospel. That's how he's glorifying Christ. He opens hearts of people to see and believe upon Christ. He reveals the beauty of Christ in the Scripture, transforming people in their character into the image of Christ from glory to glory. He manifests his own person in and through the church by giving spiritual gifts to every single Christian for the upbuilding of local bodies of Christ, the the church. He calls nations. That doesn't mean geopolitical boundaries like you see on a map. Ethnolinguistic people groups, cultures. He, he, he penetrates into pagan societies like he did Ur of the Chaldees and saved a pagan Gentile named Abram. He penetrates today into cultures through the preaching of the gospel and calls people, here it is, into the sway of the gospel of Christ like a flood, just whoosh, there you go. And then he fulfills all the new covenant promises. Those are applications. Here's some more applications. When you were lost, this was true of you. You thought God was boring and sin was awesome. When you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, sin still lies to you. It's just shiny little plastic trinket. It looks attractive, but then you realize it's one of those little drop a coin in a vending thing and get out your little, it's, it's, it's fake jewelry, it's fool's gold, because you've tasted a superior pleasure, Christ. What does that look like in the believer's life? He triumphed over all your resistance to the gospel. He removed your blindness. He showed you Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way that Jesus became irresistibly attractive to your regenerate heart. God doesn't drag anybody into heaven kicking, kicking and screaming. That's not what the doctrine of election means. He saved you, but you didn't want him to. The doctrine of election, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the application of God's eternal election, is like handing a man in the desert an ice-cold glass of water. You, you can't turn him down once the Holy Spirit opens your heart. One more application insight. The Spirit binds His saving work to the gospel of Christ. He's not going to work in any eternal saving way in the life of any person apart from the gospel. He's gracious and He does a lot of work in a lot of people's lives. But His eternal work in the lives of any and every person is bound to the gospel. Why? Because he has a goal. His aim is to glorify the Christ of the gospel. It's what he wants to do. That's his vocation. So there are four things that I want to talk about in our remaining time about our relationship to the Holy Spirit in light of all that application stuff that I just highlighted.
And the four things are the four different ways, as far as I'm aware, there may be others, but I'm unaware, I'm ignorant, that we have a relationship to Holy Spirit. As believers, we are to be filled with the Spirit, we are to walk by the Spirit, we are to be led by the Spirit, and we are commanded not to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. We'll take them one at a time. First, we are commanded as believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You all are familiar with this verse, Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a present, passive imperative. A right now, action happen to you command. Present, passive imperative. Passive means the action happens to the subject. It happens to you but you're commanded for this to happen to you. It's actually present, so it's be, being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, as I said, a command. What does this mean? I'm just going to leave that verse up there and do a little, uh, you know, ex- explanation, insight, borrowing from the help of others. John Stott in his tremendous little book, baptism and fullness, highlights the fact that this is a command. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, Stott writes, is not optional for the Christian. It is rather obligatory. God requires this of us. So he explains this this verse, whereas excessive alcohol leads to unrestrained and irrational license, transforming the drunkard into an animal The fullness of the Spirit leads to restrained and rational moral behavior, transforming the Christian into the image of Christ. Thus, the results of being under the influence of spirits, alcohol, on the one hand, and of the Holy Spirit of God on the other hand, are totally and utterly different. One makes us like beasts. The other makes us like Christ. So I want you to listen to the verses around Ephesians 5, 18. It's actually the verses, I'll read that one and the few right after it. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be being filled with the Spirit. Here's the next verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for, the, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Let me lean on Stott once again before we leave this incredibly important passage. Stott writes, the Holy Spirit loves to glorify the Lord Jesus, manifesting him to his people in such a way that they delight to sing his praises. Did you hear that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Spirit-filled people, Stott writes, delight to sing Christ's praises. And then the passage goes on, always giving thanks in all things through Jesus Christ to God the Father. Stott writes, most of us give thanks 
thanks sometimes for some things. Spirit-filled believers give thanks always for all things. How can you obey this command? We're going to get to this in Thessalonians later, so I'm trying not to get too far ahead of myself. Do not quench the Spirit. Give thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You can't tell God thank you for something that you don't believe he did. But the Bible commands you to tell God thank you for everything which presupposes sovereignty and you're trusting him that he knows better than you do. So the parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, is in Colossians. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians are mirror letters. They have a lot of the exact same verses, verbatim. They're mirror letters. Colossians is about the glory of Christ in the cosmos everywhere. He is above all things. Ephesians is about the glory of Christ in the church, but they're mirror letters. And so in Ephesians 5, it says what I read to you, and in Colossians 3, it says, listen carefully and see if you can find the parallel. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That should sound very similar to what we read in Ephesians. What's the parallel from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5? Be being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, Colossians. That's what spirit filling looks like. You're filled with and dwelling richly in the word of Christ, the scriptures. John 7, concerning being filled with the Spirit. We're told that on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And leaning on Stott once again, he writes, how do we experience this invigorating, refreshing, thirst-quenching fullness? The answer is, in this passage that's on the screen for you, let him come to me and drink. But look at the parallel phrase, he who believes in me. Stott writes, the phrases are not two, the condition is one. There's no difference between coming to Jesus and drinking and believing in him. It's expanding on the same idea. Stott writes, for coming to him to drink is coming to him in faith, believing. The verbs, thirsting, coming, drinking, are all present tense in John 7. So we're not only to come to Jesus once in penitence, repentance, and faith, but also thereafter to keep coming and to keep drinking because we keep thirsting. We do this physically. Whenever we're thirsty, we get a drink. We must learn to do this spiritually also. The Christian is a spiritual dipsomaniac, always thirsty, always drinking. And drinking is not asking for water, but actually taking it. 
It is extremely simple. Drinking is one of the first activities which babies learn. Indeed, they do it by instinct. Stock closes on this passage. There is no way to ensure a constant inflow and a constant outflow except to keep coming to Jesus and to keep drinking for the fullness of the Spirit is to be continually appropriated such by faith. So, if you're thirsty, come to Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. I didn't say the obvious about the Ephesians 5 passage, but to drink to inebriation or even moderate buzz is biblically sinful. Carte blanche, end of paragraph, period. That's sinful. We're not only to be filled with the Spirit, we are to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 3. Are you so foolish, Paul writes to the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the faith. You started by the Holy Spirit. How are you going to continue? There's a parallel verse to this one actually in Colossians as well, which says in Colossians 2, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? Repentance and faith. How do you walk in Him? Repentance and faith. Or as John 7 said, you keep drinking of Christ by the Spirit. You're never going to be perfected by your own power. And perfected is not sinless perfectionism. It's sanctification, conformity to the image of Christ. Galatians carries this theme again of walking by the Spirit. But I say, Ephesians 5, uh, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. How are you going to get victory over that thing that keeps killing you? How are you going to finally be set free from the tyranny of what the Bible calls spiritual footholds, which become strongholds? You walk by the Spirit. Because if you do that, you not only cannot, this verse says you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You must walk by the Spirit. Constant dependence, constant trust. Galatians again in chapter 5. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, regeneration, let us also walk by the Spirit, sanctification. So we've seen two aspects of the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit this far. We are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And as that's happening, drinking of Christ's fullness continually, letting the word of Christ richly dwell in us, we then walk by the Spirit. And we're no longer under the tyranny of sin and its shackles. Third, we're to be led by the Spirit. The Bible has a lot to say about this. For all, Romans 8, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What's the inference? What's the other side of that coin? None are sons of God who are not led by the Spirit. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. No others are His spiritual children. So we're to be led by the Holy Spirit. Again, a 
Galatian theme. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Pilgrim's Progress, you're not fearful that Mount Sinai is going to fall on your head because you've been set free in Christ to obey the law of love from a heart of love. That's what spirit leading looks like. Okay, there's a fourth one. So we are to be being filled by the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit, and we are to be led by the Spirit. But there's two negative commands in the New Testament. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. What is this all about? This is the whole verse. Five words. You can memorize it right now. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. I'm going to say it again. Put it in your noggin. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Five whole words. Do not quench the Spirit. This is a present, active, imperative command. Not a suggestion. This is God's orders. So as you memorize this verse, let's meditate on it. Do not quench the Spirit. Let me read to you the verses right around it. I'll start with 19, and not around it, but following it. 519, do not quench the Spirit. 20, what would that look like? Do not despise prophetic utterances, Holy Spirit-inspired truth. What else would that look like? But examine everything carefully. What else would it look like not to quench the Spirit? Hold fast to that which is good. New American Commentary on 1 Thessalonians 5 adds this. The church was not to dismiss or reject words of prophecy as something unworthy of consideration. It doesn't mean fortune-telling, prophecy like our modern spiritism defines it, but biblical prophecy, boldly declaring the truth of God, not despising prophecy. The person with the gift of prophecy proclaimed the word of the Lord to the congregation for its, quote, strengthening and encouragement and comfort, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. You got the gift of prophecy, that's what you do. You proclaim the word of the Lord, that's this word, to strengthen, encourage, and comfort the church. A word of prophecy could also be evangelistic, leading to the conviction and conversion of unbelievers. The spirit might be quenched by the prophet himself if he or she refused to speak the word that the spirit gave them. But the exhortations in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Thessalonians 5 is not for the prophet, it's for the community of faith, the church, the Thessalonians, uh, that was evaluating the worth of the prophecy and determining whether to accept it or reject it. The church as a body. Paul's not writing to an individual Christian in 1 Thessalonians 5. He's writing to the congregation at Thessalonica. The church as a body might quench the spirit. How? By refusing the word of the prophet. If we are Berean and we examine Scripture to see that truth proclaimed is actually faithful to the word written and we reject it, that's quenching the Holy Spirit. Do not do that is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and that's a Spirit-inspired command. 
There's another verse that tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So does the Holy Spirit get his feelings hurt easily? Do we need to pamper him so he not be grieved? No. No. You know what it's like to be grieved. But do you know what it's like to be grieved for somebody else? The Holy Spirit can be grieved for you. And it should bring you grief if he is grieved for you. What's his job again? To elevate Christ, to show you his beauty in such a compellingly irresistible way that you can't conceive of not embracing Christ. So if Christ is not the great treasure in your life, the pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in a field worth more than anything you could possibly ever conceive, if you don't prize him, we say treasure him a lot, if you don't value, esteem, desire him, embrace and cherish him, that's my I got to stop talking in a few minute alarm. If you don't do that, should I repeat all those adjectives? It grieves the Spirit. What God the Holy Spirit wants in your life is for you to prize Jesus as much as He does. That's what He wants. He wants you to see that everything in this world is, quote God in the Bible, worthless, scubala, dung, compared to knowing Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can make you see Jesus as more valuable than the whole universe. But when you see him that way, you can't unsee him. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is what happens right before and right after the verse on the screen. Verse 29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. If your words don't give grace to people who hear you speak, that's the verse right before this one. It's tantamount, it is equal to grieving the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 is do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In a commentary John Stott wrote, not the book I referenced earlier, commentary on Ephesians, he wrote on this command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul has just warned us to give no opportunity to the devil, verse 27. Now he urges us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's evident from this that the Holy Spirit is fully personal. You are able to cause him sorrow, pain, distress. Only persons can feel these things. But what grieves him? 
Since he is the Holy Spirit, he is always grieved by unholiness. And since he is the one spirit, Ephesians 2.18, Ephesians 4.4, disunity in the church will also cause him grief. That's why Ephesians 4 is in the Bible and Ephesians 2 is in the Bible. In fact, anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with the Spirit's own nature. And therefore, it hurts him. It grieves him. One might add that because he is also the Spirit of truth through whom God has spoken, he is upset, to use our vernacular, by all our misuse of speech. Every lie we say, Every false thing we say to our neighbor, bear false witness. Every lie we tell about God, this grieves the Holy Spirit. So, be, be being filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, um, live by the Spirit, do not quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. I've said multiple times the Spirit's numero uno job, His vocation, His assignment among the Trinity in the lives of believers is to glorify Jesus. Jesus said this in John 16, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take of mine and disclose it to you. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. The Spirit will not give to you anything that God the Son did not give to God the Spirit to give you. He's going to give you Christ if He's at work in your life. He glorifies Jesus. So you can ask yourself all the diagnostic questions that I could go on a long list with. Are you, being, are you be being filled with more of Christ? This is the Spirit's work in glorifying the Son. Two quotes that I wanted to project for you. I've read to you plenty, but I saved these to project. In that book, Baptism in Fullness, Stott writes, the fundamental truth which is involved is that by uniting us to Christ, God has given us everything. By the unutterable grace of God, we have already been, Ephesians 1.3, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here's the last one. Is not the very suggestion that there is some additional gift still to come, derogatory to the fullness, and I love this word, satisfactoriness of Jesus. Growth in Christ, yes. Additions to Christ, never. Christ and Him alone. That's what it looks like to be full of the Holy Spirit. So I have some book recommendations. I, I, get, I did a giveaway last week. I'm not giving these away. These are some of my treasures, okay? You can't have them, but you can go get them. Uh, so here you go. This is the old version of that book, Baptism in Fullness. You see how big it is? All right. You could read it this afternoon, no joke. Baptism in Fullness. Uh, John Stott, The Work of the Holy Spirit Today. It's tremendous. It argues, I believe, compellingly against the Keswick doctrine of second blessing, that you're baptized with the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion. That's a really, it's a really helpful book on everything we've talked about today. The next one is Octavius Winslow's The Work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's, he's my guy. Um, if you read anything about Octavius Winslow, I think you'll be remarkably blessed, but I think he's especially good on Romans 8, on spiritual personal revival, 
Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul. That's the name of his book and the work of the Spirit. That's Octavius Winslow. This one, J.I. Packer, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Clyde gave me this when I was a less than one-year-old Christian. And, uh, oh, man, it's so, so helpful. And then finally, if you want to know what Jordan Thomas believes about revival, we use that phrase a lot, what is it? I would say this is, this is what I believe revival, about revival. Pentecost today, Ian Murray, about the work of the Holy Spirit. The subtitle is Biblical Basis for Understanding Revival. Uh, so these are some helpful resources. That's some practical theology, be being filled, walk in, live in, and don't grieve or quench the Holy Spirit.